You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, these podcasts can be heard at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 92, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled The Occult Truths of Myths and Legends. This is the second part uh, on Richard Wagner. This is the twelfth lecture, translated by Paul King, and these are listener notes of 16 lectures, given in 1904. This particular lecture 12 was given in Berlin on the 5th of May, 1905. We shall see in these lectures how the figures in Wagner's dramatic operas rise up to the gods and then descend again to the people in order to depict in humanity its liberation and redemption. Right at the beginning of titled The Ring of the Nibelungs we meet the whole leitmotif of the fifth root race of the post-Atlantean age, the birth of the ego, of self-consciousness, out of the astral element. Water, as you know, is the occult representative of the astral. If we wish to understand the mood that pervades Richard Wagner, we need to enter into the Norse myths. Without being aware of all the details, Wagner nevertheless expressed the power and symbolism of what is living in these myths. If we allow everything that is clustered around the Norse gods to work on us, we find that they have something tragic about them. Everything points to an ending the twilight of the gods. What is this essential feature that led to such a wonderful work of art as Wagner's The Ring of the Nibelungs? Let's picture what the earth was like at the time of the original Nordic race. You would find a tropical climate, one that in no way plays second fiddle to the tropical climates of today. Humanoid apes, elephant and giraffe-like animals lived in this region. Nature was very different from what it is today. This was gradually succeeded by the Ice Age, and we find our ancestors there with their primitive culture. Our Germanic culture emerged from the conditions after this Ice Age. There were mysteries and mystery schools in the north as well. There were Druid mysteries, and very profound Druid mysteries more to the west. There was an initiate behind these, Odin, Remnants of these old Druid mysteries were preserved primarily in lands with a Celtic population. There were traces of it in England up to the time of Queen Elizabeth I. Then they ceased. The old Druid mysteries tell of a cella, Sig or Siga, who at a particular age surrendered his individuality and became able to take into himself a higher individuality. This is a procedure that is described in all the mysteries. At the baptism by John, Jesus also offers his body to a higher individuality. Everything connected with Sig recalls the mystery that a cella can give up his individuality for a higher being. Odin entered into Sig in order to prepare what was to take place in the future. Every mystery pupil was taught that the world of the Norse gods would be succeeded by Christianity. All Odin's work is a preparation for the coming Christianity. In the wanderings of the Atlanteans toward the Gobi Desert, 
various tribes were left behind here in the north. While the age of the fourth subrace unfolded in the south, something was also happening in the north. Here, too, there were four phases of development, the last of which was the twilight of the gods itself. In the Norse myths we hear what course these four preparatory epochs took. During this period, Odin was initiated four times to higher levels. In his first initiation during the first sub-race, he hangs for nine days on the cross, on the wood of the world ash. Then Mimir comes to him and teaches him the runes. Here too, hanging on the cross signifies a redemption. In the second initiation, he gains a drink of the mead of wisdom, guarded by Gunlod in a cave. He has to turn himself into a snake in order to get into the subterranean cave. He stays there for three days in order to drink of the mead. In the third initiation, corresponding to the third subrace, he has to sacrifice his own eye, E-Y-E. This is the eye of wisdom of the legends, recalling the one-eyed cyclops who signify the people of the Lemurian race. This eye receded in us long ago. A hint of it is still visible in newborn babies. This is the eye of the clairvoyant. Why did Odin have to sacrifice it? In every root race there is a short repetition of previous development. Thus in the third sub-race, clairvoyance had to be sacrificed once again, so that what lit up first in Odin, namely rational wisdom, the hallmark of the European way of viewing things, could emerge. Odin's fourth initiation is connected with Siegfried, the scion of the gods, the scion of Odin. Human initiates now take the place of a god for the first time. Siegfried is initiated. He must awaken Brunhild, his higher consciousness. He must purify himself of his passions by walking through flames, through fire. In this way he undergoes purification, catharsis. He had previously slain the dragon, overcome his lower sensuality. Through this he has gained invulnerability. Only between his shoulder blades is there still a spot where he can be wounded. The vulnerability of this spot points symbolically to the fact that this fourth sub-race is still lacking something that only Christianity can bring. One had to come who was invulnerable where Siegfried was vulnerable, namely Christ, who bore the cross between his shoulders at the place where Siegfried could be killed. Another onslaught, a storming in of Atlanteans, was to founder against Christianity. The tribes led by Atli, Attila or Etzel, were of Atlantean descent. These Mongolian peoples retreat in the face of the Christianity they meet in the form of Pope Leo I. The old culture is succeeded by Christianity. In earlier times, evolution was depicted in myths and symbolic pictures. This is also the case with the Baldur myth. We have to recognize a Nordic initiate in the figure of Baldur. All the conditions of initiation are fulfilled here. The enigma of Baldur conceals a profound truth. The unique place of Loki in Norse mythology can only be understood through this enigma. You know that Baldur's mother who was afraid for Baldur, 
because of bad dreams she had had, gets all beings to swear not to harm Balder. Only one unprepossessing plant, the mistletoe, is forgotten, and it is from this mistletoe, which had not sworn the oath, that Loki fashions an arrow. He gives the arrow to the blind god Hodur, while the gods are playing at throwing things at Baldur whom nothing would hurt. Hodur throws the arrow at Baldur and kills him. You know that the evolution of the earth was preceded by another one, the Old Moon period. The substance of Old Moon was similar to living matter. A few of the moon plants remained at that level and intrude in a disturbing way into the subsequent world. They are unable to grow in mineral soil. They can only grow parasitically on other living things. Mistletoe is a moon growth. Loki is a divinity of the moon. He originates, at any rate, from the moon period. He was perfect during the moon period. Now he represents what is imperfect, what is evil. Now we can also understand why Loki, in Wagner's operas, has a double nature, being simultaneously both male and female. As you know, unisexuality coincides with the separation of the moon from the rest of the planet. The new creation is presided over by the sun god Baldur. There is now a confrontation between the old and the new creations, between the moon realm and the sun realm, a clash in which Baldur, the representative of sun culture, falls victim. Blind Hodur represents the blind necessity of nature living in the mineral kingdom. He had to take on guilt in order to make a certain progressive element possible. In the mysteries, Baldur had to be brought back to life after being killed by Loki through Hodur. These are feelings that imbue us when we follow the creations of Richard Wagner. Let's look at a scene in the title Rheingold. The Rhine maidens are guarding the treasure of gold. The dwarf Alberich is burning with sensual desire for them. Then a passion for the gold awakens in him, and he forsakes love, because anyone who wants to possess the gold and power must abjure love. So he forges the ring. What is connected with this ring? Possession, egotism. As long as a person is not separated off, they want nothing for themselves. Egotism begins when the human being is encircled by the ring of sensuality. Alberic has to forsake love. He, the representative of self-consciousness, surrounds himself with what is physical. The physical body is built according to the same laws that rule in nature, from which the Rhine maiden's gold is obtained. Egotism, separate existence, is bound to the gold. Gold here is wisdom gained through perception, anschauung, not creative wisdom. In order to gain creative wisdom, the human being must first make himself receptive to it. Let's go back in time to when the human being had not yet divided into two sexes. At that stage he was not yet able to think, to create self-awareness for himself through thinking. Everything he created was created through love. The human being had to purchase his higher mentality at the cost of half his productive power by becoming unisexual. Where did all this come from? It all came from beings who were creative previously. 
The earth had to pass through a transition into a different condition so that man could receive this solid corporeality. Odin belonged to earlier times, to the times of surging fire mists. Where the purest fire forces still reigned on earth when the Spirit of God moved upon the waters, that is where Odin was at home originally. Now Odin had to transform his house into a solid fortress. The earth had to solidify. Valhalla, the home of the gods, was built by the giants. These are the people of the Lemurian race, the Lemurian giants, who still lack a higher mental level. The giants, humanity resting itself out of its bodily nature, demand Freya for this, once again a female figure. She symbolizes consciousness, the consciousness needed to preserve oneself, to rejuvenate oneself. And now it is Loki, who out of the fiery element is able to build something that is right for our lower nature. Loki relieves Odin from having to sacrifice Freya. Loki brings it about that Freya can remain with the gods. What must the human being attain? The ring. That which is our bodily nature, structured according to certain laws. Passion, which is necessary for our sensual nature, must be given up for the sake of a higher love. Before the highest development can begin, the soul, too, must be built up. The giants relinquish Freya, relinquish love. Love remains with the gods. The giants content themselves with the ring, the element of gold, which comes with a curse. Love returns only through Christianity. Norse mythology has a tragic character. We see that Odin is sorry to pass on his rulership to one born of the human race. He wishes to retain his governance and tries to win back the ring. Then he meets Erda. Erda is the spirit of the earth, the consciousness of all humankind as long as it evolves on earth. Her daughters, the Norns, know the higher consciousness of the earth. They represent the primal knowledge of the earth concerning its past, present, and future. They unravel individual knowledge. Above individual knowledge is a consciousness that has the character of eternity. Odin hands over the ring to the giants. The giants begin to fight amongst themselves. Separate existence leads to conflict, and thus an ominous motif enters in. This ominous motif expresses the transition of humanity, which had previously lived more in community, to a new humanity, to separate existence, to war against one another. Odin realizes his position toward humanity, particularly his relationship to the fifth root race. A rainbow leads from Valhalla to the earth. The rainbow has a particular meaning in occult wisdom. You know the rainbow that appears after the flood. Now, now we find this symbol repeated in the Norse myths. It symbolizes the transition from the Atlantean to the post-Atlantean era. In those Atlantean times, the air was much thicker and water much thinner than they are today. The form of precipitation we have today, rain, didn't exist. A rainbow wasn't possible at that time. The land where the Norse peoples emerged is not unjustifiably called the, in quotes, realm of mists, Nabelheim, Niflheim. It is from this realm of mists that the water masses formed that deluged the continent of Atlantis. 
Only at the end of the Atlantean period, after the flood, did the rainbow appear. Occult research tells us what this means. In the biblical rainbow of the flood and in the rainbow bridge of Norse mythology, we meet something that depicts the connection between man and the gods. When Odin is conquered by Siegfried, it signifies that man now takes the place of the ancient gods. The task of the fifth root race is prepared for, which involves allowing the leaders of humankind and the masters to emerge from humanity itself. The earlier leaders of humanity came down from higher worlds. Now it would be a master who had gone through all the stages of humanity's evolution, only more quickly than other people, and as a more advanced individual, leads humanity. We will speak again about Siegfried and hear more about this development next time. You will see that in order to portray what moved humanity most deeply, Wagner used the power of the Norse myths. It is here that we find the immensely uplifting and penetrating quality of the Wagnerian operas. The end of Lecture 12